I have a love-not-love relationship with modern worship songs. I don't know if Blake is listening. (laughs) Um, I looked for a good joke for this, but I didn't find one. But I did think about this, a nod to such thought. I have a joke about modern worship songs. 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 There you go. Some of y'all got that one. And then there's moments in my life when I am deeply impacted by modern worship songs. Just a moment ago, as we were singing that song, that's semi-modern by Chris Tomlin. I don't know how old that song is. Whom shall I fear? 10, 15 years old, 20 years old. I don't exactly remember. I would have looked it up, except this just happened like right there. And I'm clearing my eyes right now because uh, I was just weeping. And, and, and there, there's songs that just get you deeply rooted in God's word. And there was a moment in that song for me, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but there was a moment that, that, that says, I'm holding on to his promises. He is faithful. Why does that trigger me, so to speak? I'm going to get through this. Some of you guys don't know me. I get emotional from time to time. It's the hormones, y'all. But it's deeper than that. One of our core group members of our church that that was there from the very beginning, God, God took home just two days ago. Man. His name was Noel Kennedy. He was 85 years young. If you knew him, you know what I'm talking about. It was kind of unexpected, as much as it can be when you're 85 years old, I guess. But I was gripped, kind of triggered by that song because I knew he was ready. And he told me so. Why? Because he was holding on to God's promises, knowing that God's promises are always good. He is faithful. So when God's word says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, like that's such an incredible, hopeful promise for all of us. That was free, y'all. A little bit of history about me. My first love in ministry was worship. I uh, started out leading worship in my first ministry kind of encounter was leading worship for my youth group. And I went to a, a, a Christian university to study ministry. And guess what I studied? I studied music. It was my first love of ministry. Now, God kind of redirected that, and here I am. I'm not leading worship today, but I have a little bit of experience in the worship world, and I love it. I love worship. But I have this love-not-love relationship with modern worship because for me, this is my personal, when I hear some modern worship, it seems shallow. 
it seems repetitive. And there are some reasons for that. If we dig down into it, as we pick up a, a hymnal, no matter which one it is, that, that hymnal was highly filtered. You realize that? Like those songs were chosen for biblical accuracy and depth and relevance to the culture. Like, right, the, those things were sifted and then they had to be printed. Where nowadays it's just written and then put on wherever and it's out, right? And if we like the tune, sometimes it makes it through. But the balance is, like, when I say that, I realize after thinking deeply about it, man, that's so fleshly. It's so fleshly. Just because a song is repetitive doesn't mean that it's not biblical. Did y'all hear the psalm that David, by the way, how ironic that David read a psalm of David. Thank you, my friend, for reading. Did y'all get how repetitive that psalm was? The Psalms are repetitive. It's, it's, a way that, it's a way to teach us. It's a way to remind us we need repetition. Why? Because I'm a slow learner. And I need to hear things over and over. And it's good to be reminded. And so, so the, uh, and the, other, the other is true as well. Just because a song has a bunch of words does not mean that it's biblical and deep. It goes both ways, right? And so I... I have to slow down a little bit and I have to think about just how incredible it is that God still inspires his people to write really good biblical rich songs that can still resonate deeply with us. And I'm so thankful that that happened to me already today. And I hope it has for you too. There's a modern worship song called Same God by a guy named Pat Barrett along with some other guys. I think it was four guys that wrote it. I was listening uh, to it a few weeks ago and I thought I would read the, a little bit of the lyrics. It says this, I'm calling on the God of Jacob whose love endures through generations. I know that you will keep your covenant. I'm calling on the God of Moses, the one who opened up the ocean I need you now to do the same thing for me. It goes on to the chorus. Oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. How I need you now. Oh rock, oh rock of ages, I'm standing on your faithfulness, on your faithfulness. I love that. We stand on his faithfulness just as he desires greatly to speak to us through his word. As I think about that song, and I think about Malachi. Malachi is the reverse of that song. Just try to explain to give an intro for me of the book of Malachi. Malachi, instead of a follower of Jesus crying out to God, I'm calling on the God of Jacob. Malachi is God calling on his people. This song was a song calling out to God and his character that, that God, that, that which you have done before, would you do it again? That's a good thing. That's a right thing to do. David did that over and over in the Psalms. This is a good thing. But Malachi is the opposite. Malachi is a book that God gave us to speak to us and to remind us of what? That we have changed, our circumstances have changed, but God is calling out to us. He was calling out to his people 2,500 years ago, right? Saying, things have changed, you have changed, but I have not. 
I am the same God. Let that rest. The book of Malachi is God saying to us, I am still the same. Would you come back? Would you return? Thank you, Calvin, for opening up God's Word last week and opening up this series on the book of Malachi. He talked about some, some, of, the, some of the background of the book of Malachi. It was written around 450 B.C., and it follows about 80 years after God's people came back from the Babylonian exile. Remember, God's people were sent into exile by the Babylonians. And why were they sent into exile? Do you remember their sin? That was a consequence of their sin. They, they lost all they had and were run out of their homes and their own cities and their own Nation And for 70 years, they were exiled. And then the Persians came in under King Cyrus. You remember? He came in um, in 538 B.C. And then in 536 B.C., he said, hey, you guys can go. You guys can go back. Or in 538, he decreed you guys can go back two years later. In 536, the remnant began to return back to Jerusalem. And they began to rebuild their homes. They began to rebuild their buildings. They began to rebuild the temple. But it was slow. It was actually really, really slow. And the book of Malachi is rooted in that slowness. It took them years upon years upon years to build their homes back. And they built their homes back before they built the temple back. So finally, they had the temple built when the book of Malachi is written. But those years were so so hard. There was neighboring nations coming in and harassing them. There was, there was so much uh, despondency and there's so much drought and, and famine and lots of hardship. And in the midst of that, God's people were depressed and disheartened. And so God gave them the book of Malachi as a message. You know, sometimes in life we think we need a pep talk, but what we really need is a truth talk. That's what the book of Malachi is. It's not a great pep talk. If, if today we're like, pep talk, that's probably not where you're going to get today. I'm sorry if that's what you came for. But what it is, is a truth talk. Last week, we were in verses one to five, and Calvin was able to answer the question, when things are hard, when things are tough, that's, that's the context of the writing of this book does God still love us? And what was the answer? Yes. So much so, God still loves us. And as we look at God's word, all we have to do is look through the lens of the New Testament, and we can know that was true in the New Testament, shown mostly through the cross of Jesus, right? And we can look today, and we can say and know that God still Loves us. Let's pick up in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1. He goes on to say, A son honors his father, and a slave his master. So he used two little uh, metaphors there. A son honors his father, and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord. Almighty. It is you priests. So he's directing right now this conversation to the, the priests, the, the leaders of, of, the, of the temple. If it is you priests who show contempt for my name. Anybody know what contempt is? 
I wondered that. Like, what is, it uses that word several times here. It uses contempt, uh, contemptible. And so I, I had to think about that. I had to look it up. What, uh, literally, it means unworthy or despicable. That's the kind of the literal definition. So uh, the worthless, it could be translated. So if you preach to show contempt for my name, and so that's not a good thing, right? These preachers showing contempt for it, not a, not a good thing. He, they're saying something significant. That's not a light word. It's a heavy one, right? But you ask, how have we shown you contempt for your name? And he gives an answer by offering defiled food on my altar. I want to press pause here before we go on. Warren Wiersbe opens up his commentary on verse 6 when it talks about father, it talks about master. And he says this, a church member scolded her pastor for preaching a, a series on sermons on the sins of the saints. After all, she argued, the sins of Christians are different from sins of other people. Yes, agreed her pastor, they're worse. Now let me read his explanation. They are worse through unbeliever's sin. They not only break the law of God, they break the heart of God. Hmm. That's like a... He goes on to say, when a believer deliberately sins, it isn't just the disobedience of a servant to a master or a rebellion of a subject against a king. It's the, it's the offense of a child against a loving father. The sins we cherish and think we get away with bring grief to the heart of God. That's what God is saying to his people. You are my children. And, and this disobedience, it, it grieves. It grieves me. Verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar, he gives them the answer. Why, how have they shown contempt for the name? But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. They're saying it's worthless. It's, it's, it doesn't have value. That's, how could they say that, right? That that's, gives you some context. Like things have lost its meaning. All the arduous, hard times, even for the priest. Remember, he's talking, he's talk, I was talking to the leaders, the priests. They say they saying the Lord's table that they are making offerings on is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? So evidently, this is what they were doing. They had lost that, that essence of what true worship is, what God had asked for, the, the first fruits, the, the unblemished sacrifices. Try offering them to the governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? There's a little, there's a little interlude here, a little in between. That, that's kind of the, the, the bad, and then there's, there's a turn here. Now plead with God to be gracious to us. And so we know now God is gracious. They weren't acting right, but God is gracious. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? The answer to that is yes, through his grace. Yes, he will. Uh, through his grace, if you turn back to him. Then it goes back to where we were before. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name 
will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. They lost the joy of what they were doing, and they lost the meaning of what they were doing, is what that means. When you bring injured, lame, or disease, animals and offer them as sacrifices you should accept them from your hands says the lord cursed is the cheat oh man that's a tough word who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the lord for i am a great king says the lord almighty and my name is to be feared among the nations william temple gives a definition of worship it's really At its heart, what we're talking about today, there is an invitation to worship authentically and genuinely. Here's the definition. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, and to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. In response to that, A.W. Tozer says, we are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. I like that. That's worship, preoccupied. We can't get past his goodness. We can't get past his righteousness and and his faithfulness. And Tozer goes on to say, most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. Mm. I read that really fast. I'm going to slow that down because that spoke to me. Today, a little bit of transparency, we're all guilty of that. I'm guilty. I just, I'll be the first to say, I'm guilty of that. Like, man, the preacher. Mm. He says, middle class Americans, I'll just take that, Americans. I could even go further. I think it'd be fair to say, Western Christians. Can we, are we, is that fair? Western Christians tend to worship their work to work at their play, and to play at their worship. Which begs the question, which I think is at the heart of this passage, is God pleased with our worship? Is God pleased with our worship? A little boy went to church with his parents one day. At the end of the service, they took him an offering, and... The, he saw his dad slip a dollar bill in the offering plate, and they left on the way home. His mom and dad were just waxing eloquent. The, the mom was talking about how too long the sermon was that day, and the dad was talking about, man, the, the music was just far too loud that day. And the boy said, well, I thought it was a pretty good show for a dollar. <laughs> Don't you just love when it... Uh, we kind of laugh, and then we're like, That's, that, that one gets me there. Sadly, we're often judging the services, our worship times, as to our approval, instead of approaching it as, is, is, are we getting God's approval? That is the question of the day. Is God approved Appro- does he have our, do we have his approval 
is he pleased with our worship? I just get this picture of God through the prophet Malachi. Just God, his people had, and even the leaders of his people had drifted so far. This, this book is a, is a very tangible kind of shaking not in a mean way, but like, I don't know about you when your kid's going to oversleep or, or if your wife can't wake up in the morning, so that's personal to me. Sometimes you just kind of want to shake them just a little bit to wake up and smell the coffee if you like coffee, right? And, and so I see through the, through the prophet Malachi, God saying to his people, wait a minute, you're missing out on something so amazing. You're missing out on something so good. Just wake up. And smell the roses and smell the coffee, this great thing. And so God prompted Malachi to speak to his people. And he spoke first to the priest. Why? Because they were responsible. There's a responsibility of the leaders of God's church. They evidently had failed. These sacrifices were being were being given, and, and we don't know how long this has happened, but certainly been happened for a season at least. The priest had not stepped up and said, that ain't right. That's what we say around here, right? Like, you can't do that. That ain't right. They were taking, it wasn't their offering. It was the people's offering, but they were taking those offering and put it, putting it on the offering of God, knowing that that wasn't right. And God calls them to the carpet. And says, you guys are responsible. You got to do something about this. You got to change your ways. You got to get back to the heart of worship. So a few short things. Meaningful notes about this passage. If you'll grab your notes, there's two. The first we find in verse 8. And really is the heart of the passage the best deserves our best. The, vet, the best deserves our best. When it comes to worship, there's only one type of worship that God is okay with and approves. That is when we give our best. As you follow the passage from verses 6 to 14, I, I took in my Bible, and I wish you could see it, every time God's name is mentioned, four times it says, my name. It's kind of a big deal, y'all. And what are the names? You'll see over and over, you see Lord Almighty. That is the name of God, Lord Almighty. Again, you see Lord Almighty. You see that word Lord. We talked about that before. That's the, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, that, that he was and is and always will be. So notice the names. The last name is given in the last verse, verse 14. He is King. And as we notice the names, as we line that up with their practice, what do we see? It doesn't match up. What do we call that? We have a word for it. And it's a tough word. We call it hypocrisy. God's own people. We're claiming the name of God, but not living under the name of God. You see, that's, that's a tough uh, truth. So why was this so bad? They were giving God their leftovers. They were kind of giving God, like, whatever we have left, those things with little to no value. Why is that such a big deal? You go back to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and we get the law. The law is very clear that, that this, this is 
these people's act of worship to God, that's the first reason it was such a big deal. This is the way they worship the one true God, to bring their offerings to the Lord. I don't know about you guys, you men, but Valentine's Day comes around. Some of you practice Valentine's Day or, or maybe a birthday or Mother's Day. What would happen if you were to give your wife a mop? They would whip you with that mop. Come on, guys. I don't know if you've ever done that. If you've ever done that, please tell me after the service. I would love you ladies to tell me exactly what you did after you got that mop. That would be so interesting. When you get a gift and you wear it out and it's time to give a gift, do you re-gift that gift to someone that you love? No. No. Now, if you get a gift and you've never used it, that's fair game, right? You can re-gift that thing as much as you want. But once you use it, and it's, it's an, it becomes an insult, right? Like that would be an insult. Like we would never do that. But yet we, I say we because I'm including me, we, we bring God our leftovers. And God is saying a very challenging and relevant and needed word to me and to you, saying to us, the best deserves the best. That ain't right when we don't give and bring God our best. By the way, just the very fact that when we bring our best to God, that he accepts it, do you realize that that's a grace gift to us? Our best is a drop in the bucket. It doesn't even close to measure up to God's goodness. The fact that he accepted sacrifice from God, from his own people, that repeatedly chose to go away for him and invited them back. Do you realize how much a grace gift that is? Even our best is a hill of beans compared to God's goodness, but he accepts it. What a gracious God that he is. The second reason why this is such a big deal is that these sacrifices were for the atonement of sins for his people. And it was essential and required in order for this transaction to happen according to God's word, this, this forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament, in order for that to happen, they had to offer the first fruits, whatever that is. And so if they weren't offering that even deeper than, than just the surface of, man, that, that thing has a broken leg, even deeper than that, there is an a, a eternal reality to what's happening here is it, for them, if they didn't bring their best, the first fruits, that kept them, their sins from being forgiven. Well, as we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus. And what was Jesus? He was the unblemished, perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see the connection, y'all? If we don't have the Lamb of God in our life, we are the same as those people who are living, bringing the sacrifices that weren't fit. They did not get forgiveness, and nor do we, unless we have the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. See, it's kind of a big deal. This is kind of a big deal. It's not that our worship 
is a salvation issue for us, but it is. If we've experienced a salvation in Christ, it affects the way we worship. Did you get it? That's why it's so important. So the first is the best deserves our best. The second thing is this. Worship is our gift, not God's need. Worship is our gift, not God's need. It's our gift to come into the very presence of God. New Testament says, with confidence through Jesus to offer worship to our daddy. To offer worship to our Lord, our master, to, to worship him. And, and until we get that past, like there's a transition in our life, until we get past the have to to the want to, we never really experience the true nature and gift of worship. God wants us to come because we want to, to offer worship to him, not because we have to. We give our offering in the offering box on the way out. Our people have always been generous from day one. Did y'all know that for the three years that we were funded as a church plant, we gave more to missions than any other church plant in the state of Texas? Listen, you guys are incredibly generous. Why? Because we want to. God is so good. We want to give. We realize all that we have is God's, and we just want to give back to him. We can't outgive God. We can't over-worship him. Never, ever, ever, ever. We need to worship God. It's our identity. We were made to worship him. We need to return, that's the call today, return back to the heart of God of worship. It's our source of abundance. We need to bring and live lives of offering to him. It's the key to significance. It's the key to contentment. It keeps things in perspective. It's a key to personal vibrancy. So what we have here in our verses today is a clear call to be a genuine people. It's a clear call to be authentic worshipers of the one true God, a call to return to the Lord and live as his people. I would point you to verse 14. There's that word that I just don't like. Cursed is the cheat. I don't like that word at all. That's so tough. When we don't get God our first, it, Scripture is very clear. It calls me a cheater. I don't like that at all. That's tough. But the invite today is not to dwell on that. Don't dwell on that. But do know that's true. The call today is, is an invite to make a transition, and it's very clear in the passage, from cheat to child. And we today can make that transition. We, we can go from, from a, a mentality of having to come and having to give to a mentality of wanting to worship our daddy, father, our maker, our savior our Lord, our master. Verse 11, it says, my name will be great. There's a pointing to the future among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offering will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. I love that. What is that? 
that's, I believe that's a really clear messianic prophecy. And that's fulfilled over 400 years later in who? In Jesus. That he would make a gateway. He would fulfill God's perfect mission to bless all the nations through the nation of Israel. That's what it's saying here. All the nations are going to hear that that Jesus is going to come. There's going to be someone that comes and fulfills the Abrahamic covenant that that I will bless you. I will bless those who, who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the nations will be blessed through you. Remember that? He's saying that that's going to come to fruition. But here's the sad thing it's saying. They're not going to be able to see it. It's saying that's coming, and they didn't get to see it. 450 years later, Jesus came. 480 years later, he came and went to the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And then at that point on, the, the, birth was, the, 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 the church was birthed. And what happened in that? God's people, the Israelites, who chose to not follow Jesus and worship him in truth because they didn't, God brought the remnant. He brought the Gentiles in. It was God's plan all along. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And so through Jesus, God turned not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And the gospel through Jesus went at that moment of Pentecost and after and still today. It's still going to all the nations where people are celebrating a pure offering. They're celebrating a pure sacrifice. We today are celebrating that pure, unblemished sacrifice, and that is Jesus. He is the reason for our worship. He is the reason that that we would want to worship. We would would come and and desire greatly to, to bring our best to him. And so, question, why did they have to wait? Why did God's people have to wait that 450 years? Because they chose not to bring their best. They chose not to bring their best. They chose not to worship and commune with God. They chose not to honor him with obedience and a, a true first fruits act of worship. I want to be honest with you today. I, I, my church family, I don't want to wait. I don't, want, I don't want to wait any longer for God's word and God's goodness and God's name and his fame to go among all the nations. I don't want to wait for, for, for heaven to come, his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to do that today. Don't you want that now? I think we all would say yes. Of course we do. I want it this day. I want it this year. I want to see God do something amazing in Montgomery, Texas, and the surrounding areas. I want God to multiply disciples that make disciples that leads to planting churches that where that plant churches. That's our mission, by the way. I want to see that happen, but I don't want to wait for that. What does that hinge on? It hinges on my worship. It doesn't hinge on our strategy. It does not hinge on our building that's going to be really cool. I can't wait. It doesn't hinge on the economy. It doesn't hinge on what's happening in this nation. It does not hinge on anything else. What does it hinge on? Our worship. Will we come to God and bring our best? And if we do, y'all, God's going to do some pretty cool stuff.
He's going to do some amazing stuff. The band's going to come. You see, I love verses 1 to 5 because there's, a, there's something that happens as we connect these two passages. They're not separate. They're connected. And here's how we connect them. You see, when you see that you are greatly loved and intentionally chosen, it always leads us to responding in authentic and genuine worship. Y'all see that? When you realize that you are loved, that's what we talked about last week, and you are indeed so deeply by God. When you realize that, the response, the only actionable response is one of authentic and genuine worship. And so if we aren't offering acceptable worship to God, if we're not giving him our first fruits, what gives? Well, either we've never known that we are loved by God or we have forgotten. We have practically forgotten who we are and whose we are. Because when we do, it leads to genuine. It leads to generous it leads to sacrificial, full, all-in worship to our daddy, to the Lord Almighty, to our king. So our closing today is a response, is an invite to respond, an invite to worship in genuineness. To realize who you are, to realize right now whose you are, and to genuinely sing to the king.